Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, I am being joined by history buff Brutus. Brutus. Yes, that is I. And thank you for having me. I just got to say what a beautiful intro you have. It's like a ballerina meets the scariest Netflix show that you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it's just terrifying. I was a tap dancer. Oh my gosh. Are you also a serial killer? Because, you know, this is a different podcast that I think we signed up for here. <laughs> this was a firsthand podcast, everybody. You're now going to see the serial killer in work. <laughs> well, Brutus is joining me as we continue our stay in Sacramento, California. And tonight, we are going to discuss the landlady of death, Dorothy Puentes. Oh my gosh. Okay, so landlady of death is terrifying. But then you say her last name and then I'm like, okay, are we talking about some bananas or what? No. No. In fact, if you if you look at her, if you were to Google her name and you saw her, this old, small, white-haired lady, you'd be like, what? She did what? Okay, so she's like sweet grandma on the corner, but really she's like Hansel and Gretel, like gonna eat you, old lady. Yeah, something. Oh my and gosh. It, and it's hard to imagine. We'll get into it, obviously, but if you look at her, and we'll we'll talk about you know the gruesome deeds, but it's hard to imagine that this small person did all these things. I mean, how? Yeah. I mean, I can't even lift a bag of pellets to save my life. And and normally people that sound like her, because I'm not familiar, but normally people that sound like her can't, you know, sometimes get up when they fall down. So <laughs> um, I can't imagine her necessarily carrying out the worst murders. So I'm going to be interested to see what you have for us. All right. So I like to usually start with a little background, a little history oh, yes. on the peeps. Yes. Okay. Dial us in. So... She was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California to Trudy Mae Yates and Jesse James Gray. Her parents worked as cotton pickers, even though I actually read that it was said that her mother kind of did side tricks. Oh, okay. You know. That was a nice way of saying that. Right. PC. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But both parents were severe alcoholics who abused and neglected her and her two siblings. In fact, they were so neglected that uh, reportedly Dorothy uh, Dorothy had to scavenge for food. In addition to being neglected, they were she was beaten and starved, and her father would often threaten suicide in front of the whole family because the father was in World War One, okay. and he suffered from. Post-traumatic stress. Now, in 1937, 
Dorothy's dad died of tuberculosis when she was eight years old. Her mother then loses custody of Dorothy and her siblings, and then she actually dies in a motorcycle accident in 1938. Dorothy and her siblings are then sent to an orphanage until relatives come and get them, relatives from Fresno. And actually, here's the funny thing I want to point out is that there is so much conflicting information surrounding this woman, and I'm kind of surprised considering the depth and the kind of media coverage. Granted, we're talking uh, 1980s. I was thinking that, too. I was thinking it's pretty early on. Well, I mean, it's relatively fresh. Mm. I mean, it's not Google time. Yeah, not Google time. Right. Mm. I don't even think the, I don't know. I don't think the Internet was even around when this all went down. But definitely the media, Mm -hmm. you know, could have done a far better job. But anyway, so there's a lot of conflict stuff. So here's part of some of the conflicting things that I read so that she went to live with family. Others said she actually stayed in the orphanage and she was sexually abused until she left the orphanage about the age of 16. Now, again, about the age 16, Dorothy manages to move to Olympia, Washington. There she works in a milkshake parlor, and she takes up Mommy's old career of side tricks. Ah. And these tricks aren't for kids. Yeah, definitely not the kind of tricks that you're going to put with a balanced breakfast in the morning. <laughs> Correct. Um, but, you know, it's sad. It's interesting to see that she fall in suit with her mom, and I think that that's very common, you know, based off of people's trauma. I think that they fall right in line with the things that they saw. So I'm not surprised well, that she picked she up was, the Well, if she was, you know, unfortunately sexually assaulted in the orphanage, then she knew yeah. what men wanted. Well, and it would never be recorded for that time period either. Right, no, no. So she's got a pretty rough beginning. Yeah, I would say. Jeez, uh, okay. that, that's putting it lightly. Correct. <laughs> but I like that. You know, I need the details. I'm the history buff guy. Right. So about this time, she meets a soldier named Fred McFall. Oh, run, Fred. Run. (laughs) Uh, He's about 20. She's 16, 17. So Fred's a little pervy there. Oh, no. But he himself just got home from the Pacific Theater of World War II. Two. Correct. They get married in Reno, Nevada. Oh, no. Yes. In 1945. And on the wedding certificate, so even in... I mean, as young as she is, she knows how to manipulate things. So on the wedding certificate, she claims she's 30 years old, and she calls herself Sherielle A. Russell. And, and, you know, Fred just rolls with it because he wants to marry her. So so it begins. Correct. <laughs> the lying, scheming. The aliases. Correct. <laughs> it all starts right. here. Right. Because she's already started the hooking. Anywho, so... Between the years of 1946 and 1948, Dorothy gives birth to two daughters. One child goes to live with McFowl's mother, and I think she's in Sacramento, and the other actually gets placed for adoption and does get adopted. Now, again, going back to the idea that there's conflicting reports on how the marriage ends, but one version is that McFowl leaves her in late 1948, after she suffered a miscarriage, and another report is that he died of a heart attack. But either way. Another report, just for me right now, is that she killed him. Yeah, that is <laughs> Just entirely, a thought. Right, she was done. You don't know what I'm Black about widow. to do. Right, exactly. <laughs> She's taking him out, moving on. <laughs> correct, correct. 
But either way, Black <laughs> Widow or not, the marriage is over. And again, she's kind of already, she's done the hooking, she's doing, she's taking on the facade of other people. People are going missing around her. <laughs> well. Oddly. Correct. Uh, <laughs> how was For whatever your, reason. Right. <laughs> but this is where, now she's on her own, she doesn't have any kids and anything holding her back. And so she's got to rely on what she knows best, and and she just knows criminal shit. Yeah, you know, just straight up crime shit. Straight up, that's okay. what, this is what we do. We do crimes, or <laughs> right, or as Panda would say, hood rat shit. Hood rat shit. Respect. Correct. Respect. That's my kind of level. <laughs> Brutus appreciates that. Okay. <laughs> and in 1948, she steals some government checks and uses them. To buy a hat, a purse, shoes, some pantyhose. And she gets caught and she gets convicted of forgery. Now, again, conflicting reports. <laughs> Wait, can I stop you right there? Can we just talk about the fact that she bought all the stuff to be a hooker? Right. <laughs> like that. It's like literally if I had to make a list of things to be a hooker, like you just I laid need them hat, out. I need these shoes. <laughs> like down to a D. <laughs> right. <laughs> This is what a hooker wears. <laughs> for reals. And then she's like, and I charge that to the federal dollar. Um, thank you, everybody, for that. <laughs> the taxpayers bought my hooker gear for this week. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. We're all in it now. Right. Correct. <laughs> so, again, conflicting reports. One says that she serves four years for this and is released in 1958. Another says that she served six months in jail and then basically skips town after that. What we do know is, is that after being released, Dorothy begins a relationship with basically a rando. And, and he's a rando because obviously nobody knows his name. She ends up pregnant and she gives birth to her third daughter, which she puts up for adoption. So Gosh, I mean, bad mom, bad bad mom. Right. If if the, if she was a mommy dearest, but I mean, the kids all make it, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Or I'm aware. Yeah, she's definitely not making it on the mommy dearest segment. Right. No, but uh, she's. Uh, she's hands off. <laughs> well, she's making it on the landlady of death segment for sure. So either way, by now it's 1952. Dorothy's has managed to get her way to San Francisco, and there she meets a merchant sailor named Axel Johansson. They get married, and they stay legally married for 14 years. This marriage is actually riddled with domestic violence and, well, prostitution. Like I said before, Axel is a sailor, and when he would go out sailing... Yes, yes. On his merchant ship... He does what seamen do. Correct. <laughs> And apparently, sometimes when he would come home, he would find other men living with his wife. And Oh, she's right. playing house. Well, not only that, but apparently the neighbors often complain about the men who would come by in the middle of the night whilst old Axel was away. So, like, not only that, they're, like, annoying the people in the neighborhood, Correct. Too. Oh, well, shoot. I mean, it's 1952, Oh, yeah, nobody wants to see that. Right. And at this time, this is when we kind of start to learn about Dorothy's gambling problems and her drinking problems. But, I mean, these all, all these things tend to go hand in hand. So, needless to say, Dorothy is, is side-tricking. Uh, oh she's working hard for her money. And, yes, 
She's even getting arrested. In 1960, she got convicted of residing in a, in a Sacramento brothel. So she's even moving around. Yeah. She's not staying in San Francisco. And when she was arrested, she told the authorities, because I don't even know what she was thinking, but she tells the authorities that she was there just visiting a friend and didn't realize it was a whorehouse. Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, you uh, know. You're going to come up with a better one, girl. Yeah. Come on. Yes. So for her false lies, her falsehoods, she gets sentenced to 90 days in Sacramento County Jail. After her release, she gets arrested again, this time for vagrancy, and she gets sentenced to jail for another 90 days. And so here again, you know, it's a vicious cycle for her. Now, after getting caught for probably soliciting an undercover cop in 1961, Axel is like, my old lady needs some help. And he actually signs her into the DeWitt State Hospital. There, Dorothy is described as having an unstable personality, and she actually gets diagnosed as antipsychotic for the first time. However, it, based on the records, it doesn't actually look like she got any actual treatment or counseling for her behavior. And she later gets described as schizophrenic as well. So... They see a problem in the actual institution, but they don't actually really do anything. They're just warehousing the patients back then. They're just kind of keeping them in there. Nineteen sixty-one. I believe yeah. it. Like, there's no way that they were giving her the treatment that she really needed. And at this point, I mean, you would. I was gonna. I was feel like I just need to make a really cruel joke about the fact that she's like the landlord, landlady of death. But yet, it doesn't seem like she has a real stable residence quite yet. <laughs> So I'm she, wondering where she gets wait it till she gets and then to what F she Street, does Sacramento. with it. Okay, that's, a, that's where. Okay, F Street. That's F what Street, we're looking yes. for. All right. So she she does her, you know, mental health state hospital stint. She gets. The she, padded white room and the straight jacket. Right. Just for a short amount of time. Correct. It sounds like just a, just a small amount of time. Correct. And again, a short amount of time. So she's out. And in 1963. You know, she's getting a little older. She starts to realize it's harder and harder for her to start securing her side trick clientele. And she actually transitions into becoming a madam who runs a brothel, which, of course, leads to another arrest. And, you know, it's just the cycle. Okay. Yeah. Now, from the victim to the victimizer. You're, just, you're gonna be shocked. Okay. Okay. Sorry. So in 1966, Axel's like, "I'm done. We're done." Smart man, get out he, of there, Axel. Correct. He's out. But she's a busy girl. Okay. She's a she's a wheeling and a deal. She's the mm-hmm. you know pimping and she's gonna find a solution. Correct. And right after her divorce, she marries Roberto <laughs> Puente in Mexico City, a man who was 19 years her junior. Now, during the year, because, you know, this is going to last, the year that they were together, they actually started a boarding house for alcoholics in Sacramento known as the Samaritans. And they took in drifters and alcoholics who paid their keep by using Social Security checks. Praying on the less fortune. Big surprise. Right. Now we're adding more into the MO. Okay, well, this is 1966, so... Again, we haven't gotten even to the 80s yet. Okay. 
Now, those who stayed with him at the boarding house basically signed their checks directly to her. And, at, you know, she's, you know, putting on this show. I'm protecting you. I'm taking care of you. No one loves you more than Mama Puente kind of scenario. Okay. And things kind of start to crumble a little bit because Roberto was having a bit of a hard time staying faithful to old Dorothy. I mean, she's not that old. She's barely... I don't even think she's not even 40 yet. And who's she to call anybody on being faithful or not? Well, Dorothy. I I don't know. So the marriage only lasts two years. But by the time the marriage ended, Dorothy claimed that the business, the Samaritan, like the Samaritan house, had amassed a debt of $10,000. But she doesn't panic. After leaving Roberto, Dorothy marries Pedro Angel Malatov, and she marries him in 1976. Pedro is basically described as a physically abusive alcoholic, so clearly this marriage does not last. It sounds like she met her match. Well, I mean, she's got a pattern here. She had a domestic violent relationship with for, for 14 years with Axel and unfaithful Roberto. And we knew she had a gambling problem. She knew she had a drinking problem. So, I mean, she's obviously not looking to raise herself up. Yeah, it's just snowballing from here. Correct. And again, a conflicting report. Some say the marriage only lasted a few weeks. Some say one week. And a few say it was a couple months. So, it... (sighs) I get no surprise. I just want to know, like, are we asking, like, one of her friends, one of their friends, and then a stranger, like, down the street? Like, how do you get such conflicting reports? Like, I don't who know. did we sample for these reports that we're getting? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But after declaring the Samaritans, that house that they, she was running, bankrupt, Dorothy promptly sets up a new boarding house at F Street in a large 16 bedroom Victorian house. And she's got a game plan. She's. This is the house. Correct. The no, she has. no. Yes. So she knows that she can manipulate people into signing their checks over. She just needs help pulling in the clientele. And what she does is she contacts local social services and she actually invites all the social workers over for dinner and she puts on this display and she hosts this dinner to get them kind of like a mingle mixer, okay? A mixer, uh-huh. what we would say a mixer. I'm today. more hearing like Game of Thrones Red Wedding, but well. <laughs> whatever, whatever kind of ceremony you. Uh, you well, know. it's a pre. It's it's she's setting the, the the Red Wedding. Uh, 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 oh, okay. okay. She's got to get. She's got to gain the trust. This from is the, community, the pre-politics. The community uh, resources. Those poor social workers. So, either way. They were like, okay, all right, this lady's all right. So they start basically referring people to her. And she puts on this grandiose scheme that she's the the girl. She's the lady. She's the good woman that'll take in, you know, give me your poor. The good Samaritan. Correct, correct. (sighs) And she even does this 
an extension of her personality or persona, mm -hmm. if you will. She starts going around pretending to be a doctor even. She actually even hangs up fake medical diplomas and sits in on checkups with residents. And soon enough, she starts going around as if she was a doctor offering vitamin injections and medical advice to local residences. Oh. So, uh, right. I mean, she's really working this wheeling and dealing. You didn't say she was Dr. Landlord. No. Well, I didn't because. <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fair. Exactly. And she actually manages to turn herself into a major figure in the Sacramento community. And. By 1977, she's actually considered to be a major contribution to both the Republican and Democratic candidates. In fact, during one fundraiser, she even dances, and there's pictures of this, she even dances with California Governor Jerry Brown. I wow. mean, this is how much she literally worked to elevate this persona of who she yeah it's like the cult following that comes with like almost all of these serial killers they have this like hint of uh, charisma the the pathological and the sociological side of them that just has the ability to play people but also mold themselves to whatever image that they want to be while really hiding this Dark, dark corner. nougat. This right. nougat She's center that's where not. The dark it's rotten. Are. Yeah, it's inside. <laughs> She's got a dark <laughs> corner too. Right. She's her own dark corner. That's for damn sure. Essentially, what she's really doing, she's forging her tenant's signatures so she can cash their benefits checks. And her crimes, her lies, her scheming with this clientele actually catches up with her. And she, in 1978, she actually gets arrested and gets charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud. And for all of this, and because she kind of works it, all right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a good person. She's got all these yeah. connections. She's, you know, wheeling and dealing. She actually, despite the fact that she, you know, like I said, 37 counts are levied against her. She's only given five years of probation with the stipulation that she could no longer run a boarding house. But she has found... The sweet spot. Okay. Oh. She knows how easy it is to manipulate people into her home, how to force them to sign over the checks to her, how to it's basically. It's too easy. It's too lucrative. Correct. It's too good to let go of. Correct. So even she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't. I, I'll be on probation. I'll be good. I won't run a boarding house. No. Okay. Blot twist. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> It's not to those who were there. Oh, true. <laughs> so she's wheeling and dealing still, okay? But she kind of ups her game a little bit. So in 1982, okay, so a couple years after she, this, this goes down, she picks up a man in a bar, and they go back to his apartment, and once there, and this is how she starts elevating the game, she drugs him, and... Oh, shoot. While, <laughs> that was a turn. <laughs> right. While he's basically conscious but paralyzed, he 
watches her from his paralyzed state as she basically robs his apartment. So as soon as he regains the ability to move, he calls the police and she gets arrested. But again, Dorothy's like, I I wouldn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't stick the drugs in him. (laughs) (laughs) These were gifts he gave me. And the police. You know. No, they're so dumb. It's like a Scooby-Doo thing where, like, the police just really don't got it. Right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> they're sending kids this in. This <laughs> is just the tip of the Titanic iceberg, okay? So this is obviously not her first dragon rodeo, okay? She continues on, okay, to the point where she eventually gets arrested and released on bail four times for drugging and robbing people. But this last time, she gets tried for grand theft, robbery, and forgery. During the preliminary hearing, she even gets rearrested for another set of forged checks from an additional victim. Oh, shoot. So, I mean, she... Layers upon layers. It's like an onion in here. She's steamrolling. I mean, she's like, yeah, 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 I'm a good lady. I'm a good lady. Let me just cash this bad check. Let me cash... You know, well, to be in jail and then get like charged again. Oh, yeah. Ouch. It's almost like she's an octopus. She's got so many moving parts. And one of the moving parts she ends up working on is she decides to go into business and draw in a business partner by the name of Ruth Monroe. Now, Ruth is a 61 year old woman and she clearly had no clue about Dorothy's legal troubles and basically agreed to start a catering business with her. To, to be fair, though, Dorothy, remember she invited the social workers? Mm-hmm. People were actually aware of her culinary skills, so she legit could cook. Okay. Okay, which is probably how she was able to drug. Oh, my gosh. That's how she gets all the men. Because they want the food. No, this is terrible. She's at the bars. I don't. I don't care where she's. She just knows. She's pulling all the right things out, and she just knows. I mean, the yeah. bars. Here's my the cookies at with Dang your Budweiser. Okay. Terrible. Like these are some cookies. She is like the perfect like trap. Like she looks sweet. She looks kind. Trap. <laughs> it's a trap. The old lady trap. Yes. Okay. On April eleventh, nineteen eighty-two. Again, in the midst of all of her legal drama that Monroe has no clue about, she moves in with Dorothy, you know, to save on expenses. And at this point, Monroe actually herself has, Ruth has a few things going on. Her husband is actually in a local veterans home uh, for hospice care, so he's dying. Okay. Okay. So she's got some legit problems and, you know, I could see her saying, I need something to focus on. I can't focus on my husband dying. So she's desperate too. Kind of. Okay. But I mean, she's legit, you know, Mm -hmm. like she's sincere about getting into this business. It's the real deal for her. Correct. Except on April 28th, she's dead. No. So she's only there 17 (laughs) days. No. When the cops show up, Dorothy's like. I don't know. <laughs> no, she's like, Ruth is depressed. Her husband's dying. Her husband's dying. He's in the hospice. And they're like, oh. Makes sense why Ruth just. Right. Correct. Oh, no. So, despite this. They duped him. 
Well, she manages to dupe them even though they find evidence. They find handwritten letters by Ruth Monroe stating how excited she was for this new business adventure. They throw all that out, okay? And, of course, an autopsy was done, and the medical examiners find a large amount of codeine, Tylenol, in her system. And at that time, her death was labeled an undetermined cause, although they did come to believe, law enforcement, that it was suicide. So it is widely believed that Ruth Monroe is actually Dorothy Puente's very first victim, but Puente's never comes up again. She gets Mm. away with it, basically. And once you kind of get away with murder... You just keep going? It's your Pandora murdering... You know, yeah. Skills. Once you get the first one in, you're gonna keep going. Correct. You know, Brutus understands that. Does he? (laughs) And a good backstab. I'm, I'm, I'm prepping for a good backstab somewhere in here. Okay, we'll get to that. All right. So, a few weeks later, the police come back. They come back because um, Malcolm McKenzie, who is 74 years old pensioner, accuses Dorothy of guess what? Drugging and robbing. DNR, DNR, drugging and robbing. Him. You say that like it's like an average crime. <laughs> like not everybody out there is committing a DNR. Like it's a B and E. Like no, it's a DNR. <laughs> They're drugging and robbing somebody. The, the drug and rob. Yeah, it's just a real show. simple crime. I just drug the person and rob them blind. So, while her other legal problems is going on. Ooh. She decides, you know what? I got to go. She empties the joint account that she shared with Monroe. And after drugging and robbing another patient, she buys a plane ticket to Mexico. However, she gets arrested before she could board the plane. And this time, her attorney is not able to argue that she's not a flight risk. You know, like, your honor, she's a sweet old lady. No, she she, they don't get away with it. She's caught. She's in jail. Good. So she gets convicted of three charges of theft on August 18, 1982, and is sentenced to serve five years in jail. Now, again, I don't understand how this happens. There's no Google at this time. There is no Internet. I Just it, it's baffling. Whilst she's in jail, Miss Killer Thing manages to get herself a pen pal. And what? she begins corresponding with a 77-year-old retiree living in Oregon named Everson Gilmouth. And from this pen pal friendship, you know, it blooms, okay? And she actually ends up getting released. And again, I don't know what she told him for him to be cool. I'm going to send you letters to the big pen, to the yeah. penthouse, and be all right with this. But either way... After serving just three years of her five-year sentence, she gets released in 1985. And when they open, when you know, when the prison guards open that door and she walks out, there He's is there. Emerson waiting <laughs> for her in a red 1980 Ford pickup truck. And it's just know. so sad because it's just like Emerson, what were you doing, man? <laughs> so they are making wedding plans now. It's on. They open a joint bank account, and they pay a $600 a month for an upstairs apartment at 1426 F Street in Sacramento. Now, Wait, they're back at F Street? They, right. 
Here's the deal. By November of 1985, Dorothy hires a handyman by the name of Ishmael Flores to install some wood paneling in her apartment. For his labor, which was um, about $800, in addition to that, she gives him a red 1984 pickup, it, which was in good condition, which she tells him that it did belong to her boyfriend in Los Angeles, but he doesn't need it anymore. And in addition to all the work that he did in her apartment, she asks him to build a box that is six feet long and three feet wide no. and two feet deep. Dude made his own coffin? No, Ishmael. Yeah. No. Ishmael made Gilmel's coffin. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. And she tells Ishmael, hey, this is just from books and shit. You know, don't worry about it. And as soon as he gives it to her, she nails it shut. And she's like, hey, can you do me a solid? Can you please go dump this in the river on your way to the Garden Highway uh, dump or on the way to the dump? In a place where it's kind of like, you know, there's certain places people know if you go dump illegally. Yeah. And you'll he, never see correct. again. And even though Ishmael's like, why? Why would you want me to throw this in, you know, unknown dumping site? Why don't we just take it to the garbage dump? She tells him that the box just has a bunch of junk and, you know, let's just kind of get rid of it. So, I mean... She, Dorothy has the magic words here. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, apparently we, she's got some like Jedi mind tricks. She just like waves her hands. Everybody's like, "Oh yeah, I'll move in with you. Match my bank account. Give me my social security. Check. Yeah. Trust you with my child." <laughs> and either way, okay, mm -hmm. he does it, and smell. the coffin is gone. Well, let's just call it the coffin is gone. Now that was November. On January 1st, 1986, a fisherman spots a box sitting about three feet from the bank of the, the river and informs the police. The cops show up, and they find a badly decomposed body, but they know it's an elderly man. However, they're not able to identify the body. In fact, they aren't able to identify him for another three years. Yeah. So, but I mean, this chicka chicka boom boom killer 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 just keeps rolling. All right, she continues to collect Gilmouse pension. She writes letters to his family explaining that he can't talk to them because he's very ill. And guess what? She's still working the room and board business, taking in forty new tenants, most of which. You know, we're alcoholics and drug addicts now. So she's, you know, opening that door. And although she is making, you know, hand over fist with these people, she still continues to go to the bars and is looking for new customers. So, I mean, she's rolling. Okay. Now, and I mean, it's simple. She collects the tenants mail before they see it. And she cashes them. She gives them a little bit of money. I mean, this is this is how entrenched 
she does this, okay? She gives them just enough for them to go down to the nearest bar, get plastered, and then some anonymous caller would call about the drunk, and so the cops would come and pick up the tenants, and then they would go away, and she would then pocket the rest of the money. So, I mean, she has uh. this cycle. She sets them up, sends them to the bar, Get some liquor. Get she some strings rest. them out on their habit, <laughs> yes. and then once they're going and indulging in it, then she sends them to jail. And every time somebody, quote unquote, disappears from her boarding house, she's ready with an excuse. If it, I, I mean, you would think after service call, service call, service call. <laughs> she's either the smartest person in the entire world, or she has like a dartboard in her house that she just throws three darts to, and it's like. Um, it was the lead pipe and, but only alibis, right? So, um, I wasn't here cause I was at a baseball game in Colorado. <laughs> like you just, I feel like she just makes them up, but for some reason no, people she's buys ready. them. She's really real. I mean, she's, she's done this. So do you think she's like pre-thought some of these things out yes. or she's just good on her feet? No, I combo. Okay. Combo. Respect. Now you had mentioned earlier, someone kind of. Stabbing her in the back. Okay. Oh, Brutus always wants to see a backstab. Well, she, whilst in jail, whilst in prison, she meets a, a woman named Brenda Trujillo. Because uh, she's legit Dorothy's former cellmate. And Brenda comes to live at 1426 F Street very briefly. And Brenda is the one that kind of catches on to Mick Shady's ass. Okay? Yeah, Brenda, get her. Nailer. Brenda sends a letter to Social Security detailing her suspicions how Dorothy was stealing. The unfortunate part is, and this is how a lot of criminals are getting away with hood rat shit, is because Brenda herself was basically was a hood rat. She in and out of police serious. custody for heroin and was a sex worker, her suspicions, her letter basically gets tossed away, okay? Now, also at this time, Dorothy claims to have do adopted a local man that people refer to as Chief, and she brings him into the boarding house of death, and again, he's an alcoholic, but she has him kind of working around as a handyman, and after installing some concrete slab in the boarding house basement, over the foundation in the garage, the chief disappears. And that's when people are starting to kind of be, this really isn't adding up. Because he was kind of high profile. Right. People knew him. People yeah, in the so they're going to miss him. You messed up, Dorothy. Well, it's, it's just talk, 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 talk now. Okay. It's rumors. Correct. Okay. However, it's not until she takes in a gentleman by the name of Alvaro Bert Montoya, and he disappears from her house, that Dorothy's house of death finally gets addressed, okay? So, uh, Bert, he liked to be called Bert, he actually had some developmental disabilities and suffered from schizophrenia. And after he failed to show up with his social worker, Judy Moyes, in November of 1988, Moyes reported him missing. She's not taking, you know, Dorothy's versions of event. Now, she did ask... Dorothy, hey, where is Bert? But Dorothy gave her conflicting stories. Uh, you know, at one moment, he was supposedly in Utah. Another minute, 
she said he went back to Mexico and, you know, the, the social worker's like, well, he's actually from Costa Rica, so why would he go to Mexico? Yeah, this isn't adding up. Correct. So she files a report, and on November 7th, 1988, the police show up to look for Bert and, you know, kind of try and figure out what's happened at Dorothy's house. Now, they don't find anything suspicious, but at one point, a tenant by the name of John Sharp quietly flashes a note to a detective which read, she wants me to lie to you. So a few days later, the, the popo, the police, returned with a warrant on November 11th and asked Puentes if they could dig up the backyard where they had seen some recent disturbance in the soil. And as crazy as it sounds, Puentes told them that you are more than welcome to do so and even gave them an extra shovel. Oh, gosh. She was, like, calling their bluff, and then they called her bluff. Correct. Now, by this time, neighbors are, I mean, because something's rotten. All right. Mm-hmm. Neighbors have been complaining about the smell from her backyard, the plethora of flies from her backyard. In fact, it was said that the neighbors and Sacramento can get pretty freaking hot, especially yeah. in, the, in the summer. The neighbors stopped turning on their air conditioning because it would bring in the smell of death into their own uh, houses. Uh, so they uh, they prefer to sweat it out, hot, stinky, and all, make uh, their own stink then smell the stink that was coming from Dorothy's backyard. Now, they start digging. And on November 11th, 1988, the police actually find a body buried in her lawn. Okay? By November 14th, they find seven bodies in total. And... (laughs) That must have been some green grass. But really, is there just like body size holes in the front lawn? And they're just like, I wonder where the bodies are. Maybe here. Maybe here. Well, actually, one of the body bones, one of the bones uh, that was dug up actually looked like it was a tree root. And we're talking Ooh. 1988. We're not That's talking, you know, a whole lot of serial killing in the 1980s. Yeah. I, it just it wasn't necessary. I mean, we had Golden Gate Killer in Sacramento. The Sacramento Vampire. I mean, we, it was there, but it, not necessarily dead bodies in the backyard. Yeah. Now, later, the autopsies of the seven bodies would reveal large amount of florazepam in their bodies, which was prescriptions found in Dorothy's apartment. So these, let's talk about the victims, because I okay. said they she, they found nine. One, uh, so victim number one, again, this is in... No order. No, no order. chronological order, everybody. Dorothy Miller. Dorothy Miller was a 64-year-old American Indian with a drinking problem who apparently liked to recite poems about heartbreak. And when they found her, they found her arms taped to her chest with duct tape. You know, when they, you know, unbar- exhumed, exhumed mm-hmm. her body. Now, the last time... Anyone saw her was her social worker, uh, and her social worker came to visit. She saw Dorothy Miller sitting on the front porch smoking a cigarette in October of 1988. So she basically had been in the ground for over a year. And, I mean, the sad part was is that Miss Miller was an Army veteran, 
and Dorothy used her veteran identification card to get medical treatment. So this is the end yeah. for this unfortunate lady. Boo, Dorothy. Victim number two is a Benjamin Frank. Benjamin was a 55-year-old who vanished in April of 1988. So he's in the ground for what, five months? Yeah, not very long. He was living at Dorothy's house. He was last seen after Dorothy told another tenant she was going to take Ben upstairs to make him feel better. And that was the last time anybody saw him. Benjamin was apparently an alcoholic, and that's how he came to live with her. So the tenants were the last ones to actually see him. Oh, gosh. And the tenants were like, I don't know. He just went upstairs for a while, but we haven't seen him in five months. Right. But nice flowers in the front. Right. Victim number three, Leona Carpenter. In February, Leona was discharged from the hospital and placed in Dorothy's care. She was 78. Dorothy, you know, the social, you know, she came in. Dorothy made up a bed for her on the couch. And the idea was this was just going to be a temporary measure. But two weeks later, Leona goes missing and is, is never heard from again. And they find her buried near the back fence, and it's her leg bone that Detective Cabrera mistook for a tree root. So mm. it's her. I mean, he you know pulls it up and goes, I think this is just a tree root. And, and in reality, it was her leg. So victim number four, four. is Bert. Okay. Bert was a 51-year-old man with, you know, who was dis- developmentally disabled. He was also a schizophrenic who would argue in Spanish with the voices inside his head. A social worker had actually placed him at Dorothy's house, and he he started calling Dorothy Mama, and, you know, just kind of, you know, that was his mentality, that was his way of thinking, and they found him under a newly planted apricot tree on the side yard. I mean, this is just terrible. Victim number five was Betty Palmer. Betty was a 78-year-old woman who also lived in the boarding house. On August 19th, Betty never returned home from a doctor's appointment. Several weeks later, Dorothy was found to be in possession of her ID, Betty's ID, But Betty's ID actually bore Dorothy's picture. And so Dorothy used Betty's ID to continue to collect Betty's benefits. Betty was found buried in the backyard without her head, her hands, or her feet in a sleeveless white gown below the statue of St. Francis of Assisi, a few feet from the sidewalk. At the front of the house. That one's really scary. Yeah. Like, we've been like, ha, 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 everything's funny. But, like, that one actually gave me a little bit of chills. Like, why? I know, I know. That one's brutal. Victim number six. There's seven bodies, right? Mm-hmm. You said nine at some point, but we'll let that go. Okay. Victim number six is James Gallup. He was a 61-year-old tenant at Dorothy's house. He had actually survived... Not only a heart attack, but he was recovering from a brain tumor. He had surgery. He was in recovery. He was going to make it. He was last seen July of 1987. So he's actually been in the ground 
for over a year, like so. He's like months. the longest. Yes, the last time he was seen was by his doctor months after his hospital stay, following the removal of his brain tumor. So the man was like, I, he like survived, severely injured, right? Until was he went to Dorothy's anymore. house. Yeah. The final seventh victim. If I said nine earlier, sorry. The final seventh victim was Vera May Martin. Vera was a 65-year-old resident, again, living at Dis- Disneyland, at Dorothy's house. <laughs> Dorothy's land Dorothy's land yeah. is far from Disneyland. Yes. <laughs> Investigators, this is, this is really sad. No. Investigators actually believe that she may have been buried alive. Oh, gosh. Patterns in the dirt around her body had indicated that she was attempting to claw her way out of the shallow grave in the backyard. Worst part of all, her wristwatch was still ticking when they found her. When oh, they unburied geez. When they dug her out. Yeah, it must have been for a short amount of time for her watch to still be ticking. Right. Now, during the initial portion of the investigation, Dorothy was not actually considered a suspect. As I, I know, you can't see Brutus's face, but I mean, he's... What? <laughs> Say <laughs> what? How? How, lady? I think at that point in time, they only found like a femur bone, but it wasn't necessarily enough for law enforcement to automatically jump to the gun and think that she was this massive serial killer. So Dorothy was allowed to leave the property while they were starting to dig. And she tells them, hey, I'm going to go run this nearby hotel to buy myself a cup of coffee. And basically she lits out. Oh gosh. So she just bounced. She's like, Hey, um, I'm not a suspect, but before I become one, um, bye. (laughs) See you later. Correct. She straight heads for LA. I mean, she's got a six hour drive. She's like, we can set up a new hustle. That's exactly what she does. Have a great day. She rolls into uh, Los Angeles, you know, using her old bag of tricks She heads straight to the bar. Using the name Donna Johnson, she approaches a Charles Wilgraves, like I said, a bar. And they get to talk, and he's like, you look so familiar, look so familiar. And then it dawns on him why this woman looks so familiar. He turns around, he contacts the police, and they pick up Dorothy. Dorothy gets returned to Sacramento, and she gets hailed without bail. Okay, so so far I hear a couple Brutus backstabbing awards. I mean, for reals. So we got a good one going to Brenda. We got the social worker that finally kind of got her. And we got this homie down here in L.A. that is just slaying it. Like, don't let these things go when you see them, everybody. Well, that's just it. That's just it. This literally is a situation that fell through the cracks because Dorothy herself was on probation. And she was visited at least 15 times by probation officers. And you see all these people in her house. You don't ask any questions. And because remember. These are bad POs. No offense. I know some good ones. These are bad ones. But I mean, part of her probation was she was not allowed to operate a a boarding boarding house. house. Thank you. So I thought that a long time ago. I was like, how's homegirl still doing that? But again, a minimum of 15 parole officer visits. And all of it That's insane. goes unchecked. They're just like, uh, nothing suspicious here. Now, 16 house guests. Right. 
<laughs> Check. Right. However, thanks to the notoriety of her case and the situation, her trial gets moved to Monterey County, California. Her trial begins October 1992. I mean... They find the bodies in 88. Four years later, the trial begins. The prosecutor, his name is John Morera, and he was the homicide supervisor in the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. He calls over 130 witnesses. Oh, my gosh. Everybody who's ever lived in the boarding house. Right. He presents over 3,500 pages of evidence, and the trial goes almost a year as Mohara explains to the jury how Dorothy used sleeping pills to put her tenants asleep, then she suffocated them, and then she hired convicts to dig the holes in her yard. So that's how she gets the job done. Well, She basically burks and hares these people. We all knew that she couldn't do it on her own. No, no. She was enlisting help. The jury takes the longest deliberation in a murder case history. They're out for 24 days. Oh, wow. They go to deliberate on August 2nd. They come back on August 26th. And when they come back, they come back with the conviction of just three. Of the seven bodies? Correct. They say that Dorothy killed Leona Carpenter because, remember, she was too sick. They believe that Carpenter was too sick to die from a drug overdose because she couldn't, you know, take, take care the of drugs. Her. Correct. Yeah. So basically, she was not in any condition to consume the drugs that took her life. They convict her on Dorothy Miller's death for first degree, and they convict her for the murder of Benjamin Fink's death. That's it. They don't count Bert. Bert was a good guy. No. And they, he called her mama, so that was really sad. Now, they couldn't agree on the rest. Yeah, jury's out on that. Right. So the judge calls the remaining counts a mistrial. And on December 11th, 1993, Judge Vigra basically sentenced Dorothy to a life sentence without the possibility of parole. She gets incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility in Chachilla, Madera County. And she's there for the rest of her life during which time she proclaims her innocence and insists that all of her tenants died of natural causes. She, Like I said, she's there for natural the rest. Natural causes my butt. Right. And she's there until March 27, 2011, when she dies at the age of 82 from natural causes. And Gilmelt's cause of death, they figure out he's connected to her, but they never determine his cause of death. So. Sad. And honestly, you know, poor guy just needs, I'm sure his family would like some peace because they were trying to contact him and she was skating him off. And Well, you got to ask yourself, how much is enough? I mean, she had over 40 tenants coming and going. She's signing checks. I don't know what people were making in, in the 80s. It couldn't have been that much. But, I mean, life, cost of life was back then well, not that much either. So she had a rough beginning but she victim turned victimizer. I think I Correct. said that early, but like victim turned victimizer and right. and such a brutal victimizer of all things, you know. But like you said, you said she learned tricks and she learned tricks from her mom and that kind of stuff. But this is the ultimate trick. And you're you're like, is what is gonna be enough? And is anything ever enough? 
No, because it's not about the money. I mean, I'm sure she probably piled it up in a room like Pablo Escobar did and like burned <laughs> it down or whatever. Just didn't care. It was more about the game. I think it was. It's it's totally more about How, the ha ha. You're I mean, not going to catch me, and I can do of this. Her to these being people. in jail and rearrested for cashing another victim's yeah. check. It wasn't. She just couldn't stop. You must think you're invincible. Like I would think well, I'm I mean, invincible. She rolls I think. into L.A. and the first thing she goes is to a bar. I know. I was gonna be like, is this where we're gonna move into the Hotel Cecil? Like, are we gonna get this whole other like and going over to the Hotel Cecil? Terrible other story, but started with this crazy. I was gonna be like, dang, poor L.A. Just run L.A. Like, don't let anybody come there because they'd be crazy to you guys. But, no, but for reals, like you said, she just shows up there. At least that guy immediately caught her, or what? Is she going to order, like, start up a boarding house there and then right. and mean, do it knows? all there? Like Drug, DNR, Yeah, DNR. DNR. She's going to drop in mad DNR over right. there. <laughs> Poor, but Charles was on the game. He got it. Yeah. <sighs> so that's it. That is the story of the landlady of death, Sacramento, California, Dorothy Puente. Okay, I'm just going to say it, though. I'm just going to say it. I was expecting a little more death. I mean, it was definitely like, I would call her the landlord of torture or the landlord well, of fraud. I mean, these are the ones we know about. That's accurate. That's accurate. Because the people, as we saw, the people who were bodies in in the ground or whatever, nobody knew. Right. Nobody cared about. Right. And, and that's the bottom line. There were probably more victims. But just like Brenda. Because yeah, Brenda was a homie. That was the other one. Well, but my point is, is no one believed them or what goes looking for, you know, junkies or drug addicts or alcoholics because, you know, they aren't, you know. Well, isn't it sad? And to that point, exactly. Isn't it sad that the people who noticed that they were missing were not family members, were not kids, were not spouses, were not anything of that nature. It was doctors and social workers and people who... You know, as bad as it sounds, are like paid or those people are on their caseloads right, to watch right, them. Right, but it right. wasn't people who were like. They should have been keeping or maybe some type of. I mean, but it is hard to keep. It's a mix, though, because right. like the service people can only do so much. But where are their families? Like, where are the people that we love and care for right. all these people? I, I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot that we just hope someone else takes care of people. Right. And well, but then, <laughs> even then, when the parole officers rolled up and they saw the tenants. They didn't do anything about it. I know. It. They're like, like I said, 16 house guests, check. <laughs> How normal is that? That's great. In a boarding home. Like, right. Where okay. they all have their own room. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, there was a lot of people that didn't do their job in this circumstance. And look at how many people suffered. Right. So, that's it. That's our story. And that, what a good story. I Like I said, I got to throw out my Brutus backstabbing awards to, you know, to the homies that actually tried to get this lady early on. Brenda. We love you. <laughs> you know, we saw Brenda be or we saw Dorothy being a, a, a Caesar way early on. And sometimes you got to get a group of people together and, you know, take down, take <laughs> down Dorothy. So, well, that's our second rental trip. Great trip. All right. On to some business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Where the Dark Corners has a Facebook page. So if you're curious or interested, take a look, send me a request. And speaking of Dark Corners, if you have a place that you would someday like to see where their Dark Corners are, or have a specific tourist attraction in mind, or another deadly landlady, send me an email at where the Dark Corners are at gmail.com. Final thoughts, Brutus? 
don't trust anybody old with cookies because <laughs> if you haven't read Hansel and Gretel or this story, probably not a great outcome. Probably not. All right. So until next time, please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I hope to meet you where the dark corners are. Mm-hmm.